Would you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21? Speaking of offering, next Sunday we will take our benevolence offering. And that's the offering that we give. Uh, maybe we'll sacrifice Starbucks or uh, whatever the situation may be, Redbox. We'll just bring our dollars, children, adults, teens, and that money will go towards our Awana program that will start in the fall. And it will also be, Awana is not only something to encourage, equip, and empower our people, but it will also be an outreach to the community. So next week, our benevolence offering will be for Awana. All right. Ushers are good. Amen. Well, let me pray for us. Lord, time flies when we're in your presence. And it's so good to see our brothers and sisters and to hug one another and to be hugged and to be caught up briefly during the greeting time, to witness a family coming to dedicate a newborn, being able to worship you and take time in your presence. Lord, we understand that we're a part of a an American culture that so often is driven by the clock. But it's so good sometimes just to get lost in your presence and to get lost with one another. And now, Lord, I want to be mindful of the time, yet I also know you want to speak to the people. So, Lord, um, as I teach, would you teach me? Because, Lord, these truths are transformational. They're revolutionary. And so, Lord, I pray that the things that you were teaching me this week, that I'll be able to convey with the help of the Holy Spirit, and that you'll give all of us an opportunity to listen and by your grace and with your help apply these things that we're hearing, and some of us maybe even for the first time today. So thank you, Lord, for this worship experience with you. Thank you, Lord. Now bless, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. I have several books in my personal library, and one of those books is entitled, The Hard Sayings of Jesus the hard sayings of Jesus, because every now and then, while reading the Bible and studying the Bible, I'll come across some passages, some texts, that are hard to decipher and hard to interpret. Now, I know the super spiritual among us believe that they understand everything that Jesus said and did in the Gospels. I know there are a few people who believe that they know exactly what he meant when he said what he said. But I'm part of the group, like the disciples, who were right there with him, listening to what he said and watching what he did. And they walked away with questions based on what he said and did. And they were with him right there in the first century. 
And when he would give a parable and they didn't know what was going on, they would pull him aside in private and say, Master, exactly what did you mean by that? That was a hard saying. I, I have no idea what that meant. And Jesus being the master teacher was so patient with the disciples and he would explain to them what the public sermon was in private. And I'm here to let you know that a growing disciple is a man or a woman who is not content to just hear the word on Sunday, but he or she is someone who during the week will get alone with Jesus and ask him questions in private about his word and say, Lord, exactly what do you mean by this? And then if that's not enough, there were some things the disciples did not understand until after the resurrection. There were things they didn't even know, things that Jesus said and kept saying and kept saying, and the light bulb didn't come on until much time later. So I want to encourage you this morning. We're all in progress. We're all learning. We're all disciples, students of the master. We don't know everything about the Bible. We don't interpret perfectly everything Jesus and the apostles said. But Lord, give us a sound, balanced, healthy interpretation of these things. Because with the time I have remaining, I want to take a moment to talk about a perplexing, puzzling portion of scripture that has many theologians baffled. So much so that when you go to a book like the hard sayings of Jesus and they're talking about all these other passages, they skip certain passages because it's too hard for them to try to put in the book. And I wanna grab one today that I believe is one of those tough, hard, difficult sayings of Jesus. We're in a series on prayer. The prayers of the righteous praying mighty prayers to a mighty God. And so today, when we get into this passage, we're going to ask two questions. Number one, what does it mean? And then number two, how does it apply? So we'll spend the bulk of the time trying to understand what it means. Now, I must warn the milk drinkers among us today. Milk drinkers are the new believers, the young believers in the Lord. You haven't developed the spiritual teeth and stamina to eat meat yet. And so you drink milk from the word, the ABCs, the one, two, threes. We all have been there and we never really get beyond the ABCs and one, two, threes. We all need the basics. But some of us have graduated to meat eating where we get into the Bible and we cut it and we uh, interpret it, we exegete it, we dig deeper. And so babies don't necessarily want to do that, but the mature among us want to get that word so that it can influence how they live. So to the spiritual babies among us today, if you fall asleep, try not to snore. You know, because babies fall asleep, you know, after they get that milk, okay. But, but the meat eaters, if you're ready, we're in Matthew chapter 21, beginning at verse 18. 
And the Bible says, now in the morning, as he returned to the city, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves. And he said to it, let no fruit grow on you ever again. Immediately the fig tree withered. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled saying, how did the fig tree wither away so soon? So Jesus answered and said to them, assuredly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. So let me talk today on the subject of prayers that curse fig trees and move mountains. Prayers that curse fig trees and move mountains. Now, when you look at this passage, there are some odd things in it. Our Savior, our Lord, our God, our Maker, our King, our deliverer talks to a tree. Our Savior, our God, our Lord, our King, our deliverer talks to a mountain. And if you were to come over my house the day after lunch and you found me in my backyard talking to a tree or talking to a hill, some of y'all would say something wrong with him and he needs some help. Because there's a thin line between being spiritual and being crazy. I, I just want to let you know that. There's a thin line. <laughs> and if we really walk this walk the way our radical savior walk, somebody gonna think you crazy from time to time. Because you're gonna imitate him and start talking to stuff. But before we just jump into application, we got to get a sound interpretation because I'm afraid some of us are trying to apply this passage in a way in which it was never meant to be applied. Because you can't apply it if you really don't have a sound understanding of what's going on. Because many of us have been going around for years speaking to mountains and telling them to move. Some of us have even said, I know they sing the song, I'm going up the rough side of the mountain. Now I'm going to speak to my mountain, baby, and I'm going to tell it to be gone. <laughs> well, okay, okay. Well, let's get a sound understanding before we just start trying to apply it in a way that maybe it was never meant to be applied. We were sincere, but some of us are sincerely wrong. So hang with a pastor as we jump in on this first part about cursing the fig tree. Verse 18, now in the morning, this is Monday morning, the day after Sunday. What happened on Sunday? Well, according to Matthew chapter 21, this is the last week of Jesus's earthly ministry. This is called the Passion Week. He is on his way to Calvary on Friday. But on Sunday, he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey 
fulfilling scripture from Zechariah 9 that he was the people's king. So as he came into Jerusalem, having come down the hill of the Mount of Olives and into the city, the people began to say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Some people said, who is this? Others said, it is Jesus, the prophet from Galilee. The children were praising him, but the Pharisees were hating on him. The Pharisees even said, Jesus, tell these people to be quiet. And Jesus says, I can't tell them to do that because if they keep quiet, even the rocks will cry out. It was a moment to recognize the kingship of Jesus, even if but for a moment by the people, by the masses, mainly by the harlots and the sinners who recognized Jesus quicker than the religious establishment did. And so after that triumphal entry, Jesus goes into the temple and he cleanses the temple because they had turned God's house into a den of thieves and they were using the temple uh, coinage system in order to take advantage of people who were coming to make a sacrifice. Some coming in from out of town, some locals. And so they would have all these tables set up and they were taking advantage of people financially. But Jesus went in there and he said, you will not turn my father's house into a den of thieves. And this would be his second temple cleansing because he cleansed the temple when he began his ministry. And now he's cleansing his father's house when his ministry is about to come to an end. So he throws them all out. He takes authority over his father's house, the temple of God. Then he goes back up the Mount of Olives, goes back to Bethany where Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived, where he raised Lazarus from the dead, the last miracle that really broke the back of the Pharisees, where they said, we gotta kill him now. And so Jesus goes back to Bethany, and we just read, he comes back on Monday morning. So now in the morning, as he returned to the city, he was hungry, and seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves and said to it, let no fruit grow on you ever again. And immediately the fig tree withered. What does that mean? What was going on? Well, I want to let you know that God does nothing by accident. Everything that he does in biblical history and even in your personal history. He is succinct and specific and given to details. Nothing is wasted. Nothing is an accident. Everything is an act of providence. And what's going on here is that fig trees represent the nation of Israel. If you were to read into the Old Testament, I could give you the passages. But the fig tree represents the nation of Israel. And when Jesus comes up to this fig tree, mind you, this is the only miracle that he does where he takes life instead of giving life. This is the only miracle where he curses rather than blesses. What was going on here? Well, if this fig tree represents Israel, Jesus just cursed Israel, if you will. Because looking at that tree from a distance and knowing his disciples were with him, he sees from a distance that it has leaves on it. 
They've just come out of the winter. They are in the spring and the summer is on the way. And when a fig tree comes out of the winter and begins to bud in the spring, it grows leaves. And that's a sign that life is there. But before the figs come, because Mark's gospel said it wasn't yet the season for figs. So the figs weren't there yet. So why was Jesus going up to it looking for food when there were no figs on it? Well, according to uh, the, 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 the horticultural background of this situation here, and having been in Israel, we got to see it for ourselves, that before the figs come, there's a pre-fig that would also come on a tree first. So there was a pre-fig that would come out like a green almond, and it was called a page. And that's why that place is called Beth Page, the house of the unripened figs. And so Jesus walks up to this plant. He sees leaves that should be pre-figs on the tree. But when he goes to the tree, there's no pre-figs, no page on the tree. So in other words, the tree was acting hypocritical. It gave the appearance of life. But when you rolled up on it, there was no life there at all, no nutrition. And so Jesus is saying that this tree is symbolic of the temple aristocracy, of the religious leaders who walk around in robes and long phylacteries and even putting the word of God on their head and all over their body. They walked around like they had fruit. They had the leaves but when you rolled up on these Pharisees and scribes and priests and chief priests, they were full of dead man's bones. Rather than feeding the people, they were fleecing the people. And Jesus is not only the son of God, he's the prophet of God. And prophets would many times speak a message through physical and demonstrable ways that were figurative so that the people could get the message. And so this fig tree with leaves but no fruit represented the temple leaders, the religious leaders. So Jesus only cursed what was already going on because when a tree in the Middle East would show leaves but no fruit, that was a sign that no figs were going to come. The pre-figs were a sign that the figs were coming. So if you had no pre-figs, that meant no figs were coming. So Jesus only cursed what was already happening. There was no fruit there. And guess what? And when he goes back into the temple, one of the first things they're going to ask him is, who gives you the authority to do these things and to say these things? So Jesus wants to let his disciples know because he's about to leave them and he wants to let them know of what kind of authority from God they are inheriting from the king. Because as Jesus is about to face the temple leaders, he knows that his boys are going to have to face them too. And so what he did to that fig tree was he took authority over it and he pronounced what was already going on in it. It's dead. So what was the message to the disciples? In a few days, you're going to be confronted by the people that will set me up with false charges that I may die. 
but I don't want you to be afraid of them at all. Because guess what? I'm not afraid of them. So when Jesus stood before uh, 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 the chief priests, when Jesus stood before even uh, uh, the high priest, Annas and Caiaphas, Jesus was under control. He knew who he was and he understood his purpose. And so he knew that his disciples had fear of these people. And you can't do ministry if you're afraid. So Jesus is saying, I'm giving you authority to do what I just did if you have faith. To speak and have a word of authority over this fig tree or over the temple aristocracy. Pastor, what do you mean? Remember when Jesus was arrested? Judas betrays the Lord and he leads a contingency of soldiers who are the temple guard. And they come and arrest Jesus. And when they come to Jesus, Jesus says, I am he. And they all fall back. But where were the disciples when Jesus was arrested? Where were the disciples who said, we'll never deny you? Though they may fall away, Peter said, I'll never fall away. And then the other disciples said the same. We'll stand up, Jesus, in the garden. We'll stand up against the religious leaders. But when the time came to put up or shut up, them brothers shut up because the Bible says all of them ran. Because all of them were afraid of those people. And how many of us know that fear, when you peel the onion back, fear is ultimately a spirit, a spirit from Satan to intimidate you, to cause you to be afraid, to not walk like God called you to walk. He punks you, he chumps you to try to make you be captive by fear. And Jesus is trying to let the guys know. You have authority over these people because of me. But when the time came, the Bible says they forsook him and fled. But I'm so glad he's the God of the second chance and the third chance and the fourth chance and the millionth chance because something happened between the close of Matthew and Acts chapter 4. Something happened because in Acts chapter 4, The disciples, i.e. the apostles, are completely different than the dudes that were afraid in the garden of the temple leaders. What happened to them? Chapter 2 happened. The Holy Spirit came. And the Holy Spirit gives us power not just to go, he gives us more power than that. He gives us power to be a witness. And the word witness is the Greek word martyria, where we get martyr from. That you're willing to lay your life down for Jesus. And because I can't do that in my own strength, I need some strength from on high to live in me and through me, power from God. The Holy Spirit came in the disciples. They went out into the street. They just didn't get high on Jesus in church. They went out in the streets and they proclaimed the gospel of Jesus. The Bible says Peter stood up with the 11 because Matthias took Judas's place. And when he stood up, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit made the difference in them so that when they got arrested in chapter 4 for healing a crippled man in chapter 3, 
the Bible says that they weren't even afraid of these temple religious leaders. Why? Because Jesus' words were slowly setting into them with help from the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus said, for just as I curse this fig tree, I'm giving you power to do the same as well. I'm giving you power in the words you say and in the truth you believe to stand up against opposition coming at you, which is ultimately coming from Satan. I'm giving y'all authority to witness for me, even against the people who by God's sovereign hand put me to death. So in Acts chapter four, they weren't flinching. They weren't scared. As a matter of fact, the Bible says in Acts 4.13, now when they, the temple leaders, saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men. In other words, they didn't get trained like the Pharisees. They didn't go to the rabbinical schools. Rabbi Jesus taught them. The Bible says they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. The same courage they saw in the lion, they saw that same courage in his followers. It finally began to rub off on them the authority that they had been given, the kingdom authority of God, not to fear any man, especially wicked religious men. And they stood up and those men, the temple leader said, I tell you what, you better not preach anymore in his name. And Peter said, um, we can't help but preach in his name. Then they threatened them and even beat them. And rather than cowering and changing their mind, they came up out of the beating rejoicing that they were worthy enough to suffer for the name of Jesus. Something was going, they were crazy people. You beat me and I'm thanking God for the beating because it shows his grace was working in my life. You beat my savior, but you couldn't beat him down. You're beating me and the same thing is going to happen. So they're walking in authority over the fig tree, the religious temple aristocracy. They're not afraid of them anymore. So when you read the book of Acts, you see this boldness. And not only did they know what the Lord said, but they went to him and prayed for more boldness. And God heard that prayer and he sent the spirit to fill them and the place where they were praying began to shake. And then they spoke the word of God to one another boldly. They were excited to suffer. They were excited to stand up when at one time they were afraid. Jesus said, I'm giving you authority over the fig tree over the religious leaders Ah, but it doesn't end there because it says in verse 20 and when the disciples saw it they marveled saying how did the fig tree wither away so soon so Jesus answered and said to them assuredly I say to you if you have faith and do not doubt you will not only do what was done to the fig tree stop right there And all of my reading, all of my understanding of church history, all of my reading of the Bible, I never read or heard of anybody cursing a fig tree like that. So that was not the point to do a physical miracle on the fig tree. 
Again, the fig tree was symbolic of the religious temple leaders and that the disciples were given authority to speak over and against these false leaders who had the appearance of fruit but no real fruit. So that's what was going on. So Jesus said, y'all can do that. And thank God one day they did. But also, we close here. If you say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done. Say to this mountain. What is he talking about? Well, let's go back to where they are. They're in Bethany. Bethany is in the mountainous area of the Mount of Olives that looks down over the city of Jerusalem, the walled city, Zion of God. So they're still up on the mountain, which gives them a bird's eye view of the topography of the land. Not only can they see Jerusalem, but they can also see a mountain, this mountain. Well, based on where they're standing by the fig tree, what mountain is it that they see? They see a mountain called Herodium. What is Herodium? Herodium was a palace or a fortress built by King Herod. And it was built by King Herod in order to demonstrate his power and to try to intimidate the people. What did Herod do? Because he was known as a great builder. If you go to Israel today, you will find things that he built that are still standing and still working like his aqueduct system. He was a great builder. Well, one day to show his power, he says, uh, I'm going to move a mountain. Well, how did he move a mountain? He had his builders because he just had to have this mountain. Cut the top off of a mountain and move it over onto another mountain. So if you can move a mountain, you a bad boy. And so his workers would dig and cut. And you say, Pastor, I don't believe that. I don't believe anybody can move a mountain. I know that when Bethel Church built down the street, they literally built a mountain behind the church by moving all kinds of dirt behind the church. And somebody said, Pastor, they had bulldozers. That's how they did it down at Bethel. How they do it with Herod? Well, I tell you what. I'll explain how Herod moved a mountain when you could tell me how the Egyptians built the pyramids. Somehow they did it. They're not as dumb as we like to think that because we're in the age of technology. We smart. No, no, no. We're not that smart. Drop some of us off downtown without your smartphone. You lost. You can't go nowhere. You ain't that smart. But necessity is the mother of invention, I heard. And they literally moved a mountain to boast of Herod's power, Herodium, his palace on top of a mountain. And when Jesus said that, he was pointing at Herodium from the hills of Bethany. So now the disciples are being told you have power over the religious aristocracy, but even now you have power over a fallen governmental system. Because Herod was backed by Rome. Rome put Herod in place. He was a puppet king of the Romans, which is why the Jews didn't like him. And the Jews didn't like him also because he was an Edomian, meaning that he wasn't fully Jewish. 
He traced his lineage back to Esau and not to Jacob. So the Herods were not loved or liked by the people, which is why in Acts 12 that we talked about last week, in order to get the people on his side, Herod did a political thing. He arrested James and put him to death. So James was a political prisoner and martyr under the Roman system because Herod was backed by Rome. And then that's why he went on to grab Peter to put him in prison as well in order to kill him. But we know what happened last week. The church had authority over the government because God's hand is greater than Herod's hand. And he protected Peter by sending his angel into the jail to set him free. So Jesus is teaching another lesson to his disciples saying, not only have I given you power over the Jews who are unbelievers and who are religious but not right, I am giving you guys authority even over the Roman government so that when you speak to it, it can move out of your way. Because what is a mountain except an impediment? What is a mountain except an obstacle? And so God is saying there will be many obstacles coming at you, but I'm giving you the words of truth, the words of life. And if you speak to these mountains by the authority of God, you can say to them, get out of my way. And what that means is ultimately you're not afraid because all of the disciples would end up dying martyrs' death with exception of John who was in exile on the island of Patmos. But when Peter died, he died at the hands of Rome. So they all ended up being killed by the government. But they weren't afraid of the government. Pastor, how you know? Can I just dial up Paul for a minute? Because when Paul got arrested, the Jews were trying to kill him. And Paul said, I tell y'all what, because I'm part Roman and part Jewish, I'm appealing to Caesar because I have that right. When he said that, oh boy, there's no turning back now because don't nobody want to go and appear before Caesar. Because Caesar crazy and he's got power to kill you just by looking at you. But Paul said, I'm not afraid of Caesar because my Lord is over Caesar. Pastor, how do you know? Well, when Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate and Pontius Pilate, who represents the Roman government, Pilate said, now, Jesus, I find no fault in you, but they want to kill you. Don't you know that I have authority to let you go or let you die? What did Jesus say to him? You would have no authority over me if it were not given to you from my father. The disciples were walking in the same authority so that Paul could say, man, I appeal to Caesar. I'm going before the man himself because I know the man, capital M, in heaven. Well, pastor, he got killed by Rome. He got his head cut off in a Roman cell at the end of 2 Timothy 4. So wasn't he defeated? No, he wasn't because he said, I, I ran my race. I, finished, I fought the fight. I, 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 I kept course and, and, and there's a crown laid up for me in heaven. And he said, the Lord has delivered me from out of the mouth of the lion. What's the lion? The Roman government. So although they killed my body, they couldn't touch my soul. So I got victory because of Jesus. And when you start thinking like that, people will think you crazy. 
You are begging for your life. No, that man doesn't have authority over my life. God does. And my race, my ministry is finished. And this getting my head cut off is just a passageway to get to heaven. So Jesus said, I'm giving you guys authority over the religious aristocracy and even over Rome because we got to get this word out. So in conclusion, going forward, the disciples were not to be afraid of people. Imagine what we could do if we would stop being afraid of people. What they say, what they think, what they did. The fear of man is a snare. It's a spirit from the enemy that tries to immobilize us. But if we can recognize that whom the sun sets free is free indeed. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. There's freedom to be who you are in Christ, even as a mess up who is on his way to glory. Be who you are in Christ because of Christ. The gospel has freed you. Christ has freed you. This is who you are. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And I'm going to preach and live how he called me to live, whether you like it or not. I know I'm the aroma of life to some and the aroma of death to others. So I shouldn't think it's strange when some folk don't like me. But that's all right. I'm not going to deny my Lord down here. I'm going to live for him. I'm going to let my light shine. No, Jesus has not called us to curse fig trees or to move mountains literally. Jesus is telling me not to be afraid of anyone or anything or any report because he gave me authority over fear. Listen to this. And the way that authority is evidenced, is found in the words that I say and the words that I pray. If you say to this mountain, if you say to this fig tree, you can cast it into the sea. It can shrivel up. And he closes the passage by saying, and whatever things you ask in prayer. This isn't saying, oh, I want a Lexus. I want a big house. No, whatever things you ask in prayer concerning opposition from religious Jews or from irreligious Gentiles. Whatever you ask in my name as far as boldness, authority, protection, success, I'll give it to you. You will receive it, but you got to believe it. They weren't thinking about those kind of trivial things we think about when we pray. They were thinking about, how do I advance the kingdom? And Jesus is like, you pray with faith, believing I've given you authority, you're going to have those prayers answered, and you don't need to fear any man or any circumstance. You don't get that overnight. You don't get that by just listening to a sermon one time. You got to even learn that on the field. You can't learn that in a classroom. You can't learn that in the church. You got to be out there in the world where they're daring you to say the name of Jesus. You got to be with your unsafe family members where they're daring you to pray over your food before you eat. You got to live this out in the world. But here it is though. It works. Faith is only faith. When we act on it, when we don't act on it, we don't really believe it. We say we believe it, but we don't believe it. When you act on it, like the elder was saying about the money, if you really trust God, you'll give to God. But if you don't trust God, you won't give. If you really believe it, you'll act on it. And when you act on it, watch God, test God, watch God. 
But some of us don't see God in action because we've never obeyed him by faith. My closet at home. We installed a sensory light that only comes on when it senses movement. And I love that light because it's a reminder to me most every morning when I get up out of the bed and I walk through the bathroom into that dark closet, I can't wait to see the light come on once I step in that place of darkness. <laughs> when I step in the darkness, the light comes on. But if I just stood outside the closet and said, well, I believe the light gonna come on. But if I don't step in there, the light ain't gonna come on. When you step in it, the light will come on. God says, when you step into what I said, the light will come on. Stop trying to figure it out. That's why faith, you can't lean on your own understanding. Do what he said and watch the lights come on. Watch him do something through you. Watch him do something for you. He'll change your life. Teach us how to pray with that authority, oh God. Sister Mona, I need you to pray for us now. Would everybody stand to your feet and be those disciples who go home and search it out. Now, what was he talking about? Get the tape. Listen to it online. What's going on? Because I'm trying to get this for myself. I'm tired of fear beating me up some days. Some days it wins. Some days I beat fear. But man, I want that consistency that I see in the disciples in the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is the acts of the Holy Spirit through the apostles. So I want this anointing that God has given me to unleash in me like God said it would. Because the spirit in me from God is greater than any spirit of intimidation in the world. So when I start believing that and walking in that, there should be a difference in me. The stuff that used to get me shouldn't get me no more. The people that used to make me edgy shouldn't make me edgy no more. The the news I get in the past shouldn't make me afraid now. Why? Because I've been walking with them for a little bit. That's right. That's right. And I've never known them to fail me. And my faith don't have to be perfect. Somewhere he said if you got a mustard seed, just give him a little bit. Oh, he'll turn it around. Trust him. Oh, Jesus, we got to trust you. Woo.